to Pi Data episode one because we're computer scientists. Episode one is the second episode of Pi Data. Uh, today we've got Rebecca Davy and David. Give me your surname. Mulcahy. David Mulcahy. <laughs> great surname. Uh, we're going to be talking about geospatial data. We've also got John Carney here and Jennifer Stark and Joe Fallon. Hey. Hello. Hiya. So yeah, um, welcome Rebecca and David. It's great to have you with us. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? So, so uh, what kind of stuff you do? How you got into data science? Some inspiration for all the aspiring data scientists out there. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, so I have been working now as a data scientist for two years. That's with Enrix. Before that, I was working as a software developer for a startup in Manchester where we were using Scala and then I started using Spark and did a bit of machine learning and that was my introduction into the world of data science. Um, before that I was a physics student here in Manchester. Uh, I think quite a lot of people I studied with now work in programming and data science so it's been a solid trajectory and it's seen me through to Inrix which is a, a very nice place to be a data scientist. So, yeah and for myself, um, so before Inrix I was in academia where I was in the University of Manchester in Java Bank Centre for Astrophysics as an astrophysicist, where I worked basically, um, so my research was on um, basically observing uh, nearby galaxies and their um, magnetic field structures and using Faraday telescopes to understand that. It sounds very cool. Yeah, it was, it was, I'm using lots of Python, so, um, which was even better. Um, <laughs> and what I basically, towards the end of that, then I started to um, look um, into industry. And I was lucky enough to be hired by Inrix, and I haven't looked back since. Excellent. So I guess as soon as you're both from Inrix, do you want to do a little, little slug explain what Inrix does? Yeah, so we're a tech company. It's about eight years old, I think, as a company. Um, it's based over in Seattle, although we've got the EU headquarters in South Manchester, Altrincham, where the data science team's based. Centre so, of the Universe. Centre of the Universe yes. and the Altrincham food market yeah. with good pizza. It's got everything going on. <laughs> it really does. So originally the company was only, it was purely focused on making speeds on roads. So we're a traffic tech company. We get tons of GPS data. And originally our, our main focus was, right, let's turn that into speeds on the road network right now that we can then give back to people. We still do that to yeah. a very big degree, but we also now work in things like parking, autonomous vehicles. So it's really any area which is about taking that GPS data and turning it into insights for drivers or cities or companies Public that's sector, public city sector. transport planners, yeah. Yeah, that's our, that's our business. Ooh, cool. Sounds really broad range of data, uh, yes. usage of data even. Yeah. yeah, and tons of it as well. It is uh, There's a big lot data, G. capital yeah. D, capital D. <laughs> yeah, that's the dream. It's what yeah. you're going to be doing. Exactly. Okay, so I guess my first question is, what is geospatial data? Yeah, so with um, geospatial data, it's basically data that uh, pertains to a geographical feature. Because so that makes sense. So you have um, either a location, um, one separate location, where you have the longitude and latitude um, points, but you can also have whole areas. So you can have basically like a boundaries of country, boundaries of city, um, and then you, know, you can plot those out and see. Um, so there can be basically data that can be explicit geospatial. So you have like GPS and that's like the main um, data format there that is just the, the lot and land. But you have um, other data that's kind of less obvious. It's um, basically location metadata, which is, you know, for example, if you send out a tweet, it might have in the metadata the location of where this person was or where their uh, mobile GPS um, device was at. So you have, so there's a lot of GPS data out there, even if you don't really know that you have it. So, um, so there's also then on uh, parallel to that, you also have map data. And in this map data, 
you know, it, it can basically describe features themselves rather than events. So there could be, you know, if you look in Google, there's like points of uh, interest. Um, there's also things like points of interest markers on a map, such as restaurants and statues. And also it could be um, a minister of founders for a city, or it could be geometry of roads. And yeah, so because we use GPS data at Enrix, you know, we need to work heavily with maps with parallel to the GPS data. Absolutely, because so the, the GPS data is literally just coordinates like yeah. on the Earth's surface, which is... By itself, it's... It's not very useful, because yeah. if you ask someone, like, you know, what's the traffic on this road, they don't think of it in terms of longitude, it's in terms of roads, and so a yeah. huge part of what we do is about saying, well, here's a coordinate, where is that on the road network? What does that mean to people in terms of actual roads? Yeah. And exactly. that's called map matching, which is a big part of what we do. So map matching is when you take these uh, this GPS data, which just describes the position on the Earth's surface, and then you want to say, well, what is that? Where is that on the road? Is it on the A34? Or is it you know, where is it along that road? Um, and there are it's a, it's a challenge that all companies working with GPS data will be looking at and facing because it's really it doesn't make much sense to people to work with G with coordinates. Um, so you can kind of you could say, well, why can't we just pick the nearest point on the nearest road? And say, well, that's where the car is, because we're interested in where was the car when it produced this GPS point. The GPS points are kind of unreliable; <laughs> they're inherently unreliable things. They, they suffer from GPS drift. So, it's basically if you're in a street with huge buildings, like in like downtown Manhattan, the GPS basically the satellite might not be able to pick the signal up very well, and you get basically inaccuracies. It can deviate way off where it actually was. Or for instance, mm. even if you had a bridge over a road, you've got no way of knowing which road the car was on, if you had a GPS point there. Um, yeah, the GPS has like an inaccuracy associated with it anyway. So it, you can't just say, well, this is exactly where the vehicle was. There's like an error associated with GPS. Yes, yeah. and it's, you're doing it on a 2D plane where, the, you know, like as Rebecca said, you know, the world's three-dimensional and you might have bridges or you might have tunnels and things like that, which make things a bit more difficult. Yeah. I, um, on that point, I've dabbled ever so slightly with um, geographical data. Um, isn't there something about um, kind of using different map projections? So projecting a three-dimensional world onto a two-dimensional mapping surface. So this, yeah, there's something that you can easily get caught out by as well. So the uh, and different um, applications will be using different projections. Mm. I don't think there's. Yeah. One standard that's Yeah, useful. and depends if you're just looking at a small region like a city, you don't really need to worry about the three like the curvature of the surface because yeah. just, you can basically approximate it as a flat plane, so you don't really have those really issues. But if you're looking over like a continent, then yes, then just, yeah, that that'll be an issue. I think fortunately a lot of these sorts of things get handled by libraries that you might work with. Yeah. Which is Great. Unless sure, <laughs> sure I have to think about maths. Like abstracts, I mean, abstractions like the curvature of the Earth are going to catch out a lot because there's going to be, yeah. I'm sure there's a million different things that can yeah. catch out. Yeah, exactly. When you're finding like the distance to two GPS points, and if they're very far away, then you have to take into account that. Yeah. But if they're only like within a few city blocks or, you know, from north or south in the same city, then you don't need to worry about that much. Mm -hmm. So, well, Rebecca, you mentioned libraries. What kind of libraries? Do you use so for um, for working with ge uh, geospatial data? There's a few where you would use GeoPandas quite yeah. a lot, um, which I think That's people that have, favorite, yeah. yeah, it's really great to work yeah. with. Yeah, um, do you want to talk a bit more about GeoPandas? Yeah, so with GeoPandas, it's 
what's nice about it is if you're familiar with pandas it's basically it's a data it's called a geo data frame what you're working on is a subclass of the data pandas data frame class and you can yeah what it's nearly identical to a pandas data frame except you have a special column called geometry and within that uh column then you have within that the, each for each you know, row you have the geometry that you're interested in so for example you might have look at census blocks and for each geometry you might have the actual the shape of that census block for like that a, row the polygon the polygon exactly yeah, which, yeah. yeah okay. so it's a shapely polygon actually is what the what is describing the geometry so it could also be a line or a point yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. i tried to use so long ago now um so hopefully it's changed but i tried to use it ages ago and had to import other libraries like Shapely or, or Fiona, you know, and Fiona, Fiona. 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 And it, and it, wouldn't, it was so <laughs> difficult to use. And I think there was Python 2, like it had to be Python 2 and not Python 3. And so has that all, is that all amazing I, I, now? Is it I, better? No. Now? <laughs> well, I'd love to say it was. Oh. No, I mean, uh, last time I tried to do any work with, um, with GeoPandas, I tried to set it up on my um, on my laptop by installing all the dependencies and then I hit all the issues that you are talking about and it was yes. a whole nightmare. Um, but then I found a doc file and it was beautiful because um, basically everything was, one, was running through Jupyter um, yeah. and the doc container had all dependencies already built in. So I could nice. do Docker run, map the um, Jupyter port to port AAA or whatever it was and then get going immediately. Yes. Produce maps. Um, I don't really know how they worked, but I know it was the important output for uh, the people I was working for. And, they yeah, were really happy with that with very little effort at all. Yeah. Because a necessary kind of building block of things like GeoPandas are uh, things like uh, Gadal, GDAL, and yeah. um, PyProj. So we, these are C-based libraries, which are all about handling the, the curvatures and the projections. And so if you're new to installing things like Python or C, you'll often hit that block very early on mm. and you end up... I think there's... Uh, that archive, which has got all of the wheel files that you can install straight from, that's usually how you yeah. get past that. But yeah, it can be a hassle, actually. Yeah, I remember I asked you about this done, and you were just like, oh, no. <laughs> so, John, you mean, you mean you've had a, a Docker image that has all that ready to use? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I found it. Either I found it or made it, but it seems more likely that we'll I have to see it. if we can find it again. Yeah, and if we can, it'll be in the show notes. Yeah, um, and if not, we can try and knock something together because um, I'll try and knock something together rather than volunteer everyone else. Um, but it's very easy to get going once you got past the installation if you're familiar with data yeah. frames. Yeah, because um, all the mapping comes um, works with Matplotlib. So if you just do data fr- um, data frame dot plot. Then you get your maps immediately. Yeah. You can use your um, really nice. yeah, use your um, data frame filtering methods. Um, yeah, it, very very easy to get going with that kind of thing. We yeah. love it, and it plays very nicely with Folium as well, which is another mm. library we use a mm. lot. So Folium, for people that haven't used it, is kind of a wrapper around Leaflet, which is a JavaScript mapping library. And it makes beautiful, beautiful interactive maps for online. So Folium gives you. Um, a way into using that with your Python data. So it could be with uh, Python GeoJSON or it could be with a, a GeoData frame. They play very nicely together. Folium also plays nicely with Jupyter Notebooks. And it's yeah. something we use a huge amount. Yeah, it's, um, I did see, I looked through some of the examples after you mentioned it um, before we started recording. Yeah. And it looks so much better than any of the maps I've been able to create with um, Notebook. Yeah, I'm straight out of the box, which is always nice. Yeah, and then you can like, output them as HTML files then and look at them in the browser, which is quite nice. 
you pass them around for like examples and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, I don't think this is going quite right. Have yeah. a look at this method. Exactly. If something's funny. Um, although you can't make PNG images out of that, which sometimes are useful and you have to use basically, I've kind of made a work around where you call Selenium hmm. and open up the browser <laughs> to make a screenshot and then add the PNG. <laughs> Fair enough, that seems like an odd oversight, but it's yeah. not, something has got someone else going for it. Yeah, I know, I know. Because I looked around for ages and I was like, can't find a solution to this, so I have to do it this way. <laughs> Cathcart Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds and Manchester covering all things tech, but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. They're good at what they do, they understand what their candidates do, and what their clients need, and they really care about making sure everybody involved is happy. Cathcart has sponsored PyData Manchester from day one, our meetup and our podcast, and they even run Mancamel. They also placed our show's host Jennifer in her most recent job, and we often pass on many attendees to them. Check out their website in the show notes if you're looking for a job. Cool. So you mentioned some of your favourite mapping libraries. You did mention with um, map matching. We didn't get into it as much. She did say why we need to do it because GPS directly matching isn't quite good enough. So how do you do map matching? How do you map match? So it's it's quite an interesting problem. So if you, what we're really interested in is where was the car on the road when it made this point? But what all we have are these unreliable measurements of this of this situation. This is a perfect arrangement or a perfect use case for something called hidden Markov models, which is a statistical method. Um, you could very fairly say, what is that? And what is a Markov <laughs> model? Never mind a hidden Markov <laughs> model. So if you've got a um, Hidden Markov, uh, Markov models give you a framework for modeling systems which move between discrete states, which sounds quite wordy, but for instance, it could be, um, I've talked about hens before with this mm. situation, which sounds a bit odd, but say you've got a hen and you want to know if your hen is sick or healthy and you go and you measure it and one day it's sick and you measure it the next day and it's healthy and then you measure it again and it's healthy and you can say well either my hen is sick or healthy those are the two states and we can measure how often or how likely it is to transition between those states and you could it's a very basic example but that would be a markov model saying what, what are the probabilities of moving between these two states where it becomes a hidden markov model is when you can't any longer directly observe that state which is the case that we find ourselves in with the gps data because what we'd really like to know is the, the probabilities of moving between places on the road so that we can find out where they were from the data, but we can't see that. Well, we can see the GPS, the kind of inaccurate shadows or measurements of where this person was. Um, and hidden Markov models add an extra layer of probability on that. They say, well, what was the probability of moving between these states? But also, what was the probability of creating the evidence that you're seeing? So you're saying, given these set of GPS points, uh, where could a car have been to produce these points and what's the probability of that car being there in the first place? And so that's how we can go from the sequence of observations to a sequence of true states. So, so to clarify, yeah. the actual GPS measurement isn't necessarily a true state of where the where the car actually is. It's, it's the best we can tell from our observations, yeah. which is distinct from the real life 
the car is on that road on one main street right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we'd, we'd actually call the we'd say it's a hidden state is the thing that we really want to know, which is the road the car was on. But all we have to go on are these observations, which are the GPS points, and they've got this this error associated with them, which is why we get this extra layer of probability around, well, how likely are we to see that GPS point if the car was actually on this road? So it's this almost like double nested layer of probabilities. And so with hidden Markov models, they uh, provide you the maths and tools essentially for working in that space and saying, well, either given this sequence of measurements, what is the most likely true hidden state sequence that would have produced it or vice versa? If this was my hidden my sequence of hidden states what would i most likely observe as a observer of this system so there are um, in the space of traffic we are interested in saying well if a car was on this road how likely is it to have made a gps point nearby and that's something where we're interested in things like the road geometries so say we have a gps point that's kind of on a corner of two roads it might be slightly closer to one of those roads and that has a higher probability but actually the kind of GPS points sometimes have a heading, which tells you a compass angle, which way the vehicle was moving when it made it. So it might be that that road was a one-way road, and actually there's no way it could have produced that point. So you get all of these factors which you can say, well, if the GPS point was here, it was most likely produced by this road, and then combine that with maybe we've seen some other points from that car that are also incompatible with it having been on that road. And you kind of work all these things together to get a final probability. How do you describe what a road is in this kind of scenario? So the, the requirement on the map that you have here is that it's a graph, a mathematical graph that you can route across. But you mm. also need the spatial information because we need to say, um, we need to be able to link the proximity of a GPS point to a point on the road, but then also in order to look at the, the sequence of the movement of the car across that network, we need to have a connected network of roads that we can route across in a mathematical sense. Um, is there a particular mathematical meaning behind the word roots? So if you have a graph with nodes and edges, mm -hmm. we have um, a node over here and we want to say, well, what's the shortest path to get us to a node over here? Um, you, could, you, could, you could represent roads in a sort of flipped way where you say a road is a node. A road is a node. And then an edge is a transition between two roads, like an intersection is another way of looking at that problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we go into route between node A and node Z, um, and there's a bunch of edges via different nodes we could take, the opt there's a bunch of different routes, but we're looking for the optimal routes uh, yeah. in our imaginary graph. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that routing can influence the probabilities that we see in our hidden markup model, because it might be that... Um, it doesn't explain the some earlier points, some earlier GPS points we've seen, which then alters the probability for that sequence of hidden states being the correct one, because actually the routing suggests that it's incompatible with the points that we observe, for instance. So it sounds like the output, the, the output that you're measuring is then saying, okay, we want to know which routes um, someone took, and we've got <clears throat> we've got measurements over these potential different routes. So these are the observations available to us in our head and Markov uh, model can say give us probabilities of which one was which. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because one another factor is that we're not going to have GPS points on every road that that vehicle went down. It's like a subsampling of those roads. Hmm. So we need to be able to reconstruct the entire route as well. Yeah, that's another interesting point as well because. On the one hand, I could imagine that um, the, the car's 
spouts out GPS coordinates, you know, I don't know, as, mm. as quickly as possible. Um, but that seems extremely difficult to deal with. I mean, there's big data, but you, presumably you don't need to be getting, you know, millisecond level GPS readings from every single car that um, that Inmix deal with. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it varies a huge amount depending on who's providing that yeah. data. Sometimes... Sometimes it'll be very regular depending on the provider. Yeah. Other times then, it might, you might not get anything for a few minutes and that makes things a bit more challenging. <laughs> yeah, but depending what you're doing with it, you yeah. don't need it to be high resolution like you say. Okay. Um, so I think we found, I think our favourite is around every 10 seconds or so. That's yeah. a good resolution for, for map matching. But. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, if, it's, yeah, if you've got a car and then a couple of minutes later it turns up on the other side of town, then that's presumably quite tricky. Yeah, the, the bigger the interval between the, the points, the more space there is for uncertainty, like the more yeah. possible routes. more possible routes and then that makes it hard then to compute. It might just, you know, be too much to compute if there's just too many, you know, options for the um, the actual router to go through. Yeah. You want to find the sweet spot for like, not having yeah. too many points to process in the first place mm. for data volume, but also the lack of ambiguity to. on the roads. Yeah. But the frequency of data collection, like that sweet spot, would also depend on the speed limits, wouldn't it? So like if, if cars can go faster, they can get further in that time space versus... Yeah. That's true. Um, where we would see that, so say, um, so you might see that on a motorway, so that say a car is giving a point every 10 seconds, they're going to have travelled further, but typically on the roads where you can travel that far, there aren't so many options for turning on or off, and it kind of counteracts that a little bit. That's okay. And when it comes to traffic, um, <clears throat> on those roads, usually you have a higher density of cars, so it's much easier then to build up a, what's actually the population of what's going on. So if you're not if you're not seeing them as you know, you're seeing them more spaced out, it's not too much of a problem with regards to traffic that you can you can you know build up what's going on because you have so much more data than you would have a smaller road. You know, fortunately, a lot of this is handled by um, there are a couple of libraries which you can do that do map matching for you. So you can um, you could use a library like HMM Learn and sort of like roll your own map matching. Uh, program or there are things like Valhalla is a OSM an OpenStreetMap routing engine which also supports map matching so you'd feed in GPS data and it would give you back which OSM streets it thinks that was on or there's another one called Graphhopper which is another map matching engine for taking your GPS data and then sort of uh, projecting map onto the OSM map. Are they Python based? <laughs> yeah, sure. it's a I question. Don't, no, I don't think Graphhopper is. I think Graphhopper is Java. Yeah, and Valhalla. Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I think does it's also it, Java. Does it run in the browser? Perhaps. Do you give the? Oh. No, it's uh, Graphhopper. We use it as a jar, don't we? You run Graphhopper as a jar. Mm. I haven't used Valhalla, so I'm not interested. Sure. Well, that's okay. We can um, <clears throat> we can put a link onto it in the show notes anyway. Mm. Um. Yeah, with people having lots of internet-connected wearable devices, tracking, cycling, and running and stuff, you could play with your own GPS data and see if you can track where you went with these libraries you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. So say you had your Strava or something, right? You could say, well, what roads did I actually run on? Did I beat the traffic that day on those roads or not? Yeah. Um, so if it's okay, um, how do you... How do you productionize these models? Because you must have a tremendous amount of data going through. Um, 
Is it Matt Poppies that you used? Graphhopper, yes. Sorry, Graphhopper. Yeah. There's different ways of, or definitions, I guess, of productionizing, like um, having something running and continuously running um, on the on the cloud or, or wherever. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or we make something that's like a one-off analysis or one-off product that's not like, so it's not like productionized in that sense. You know? mm-hmm. It's like for a client. So I don't know what kind of, what is your, what's the output of your work? So we are interested in saying for a sequence of GPS points, turn that into a sequence of edges. Mm-hmm. And it will be, GPS points are fairly contained when we work with them. You can break them very loosely into periods of movement, like trips. Um, so we have a series of GPS points, which we know are approximately a trip. And then we want to know what that is edges. Mm-hmm. And from there, you can make it into any number of things, which is the, yeah, the origin, flexibility yeah. of it. You can look at origin and destinations. So basically, you can pick out a part of the city and say, you know, every, you know, trip that's or originating from here, where where do they all end up across the city? Yeah. Or if we have, for a day, we have every edge that was, every street that was driven on, we can say, we can get, like, counts for those edges across the day. So, like, traffic volume, yeah. traffic density. We could turn it into speed data, because we can say, well, we had these GPS points across these edges. We now know the speed that that vehicle traversed those edges, mm-hmm. which is very important to what we do. Yeah. And identifying corridors as well is very important for public sector. So basically identifying in a city which is the, are the busiest corridors up in a city so they can plan accordingly. So the output then of your of your contract or whatever would be a report in that sense. Oh that so case. this is more of an internal product mm. that we use as a basis for other products at the moment. Mm. We reworked it last year, didn't we? Yeah. So is this the kind of thing that is probably not going to be work on real live stream to data or real time live stream to data? No, it could, like, it could do. That's not how we would use it. I mean, so you could no. you could set it up with uh, like streaming technology, for instance, and have it constantly running on streams of data. Or you could say, I'm going to run it in a batch every day on the data we yeah. have. Mm. It depends on what you want to do with that data. If you want to deliver real time speed, you'd want to use it in a streaming way. Yeah. yeah. Or if you want to create a report for yourself, you can just say, I want, you know, all kind of trajectories or in a region and say, like, give me all those and then I'll, you know, you can output and get the data then for all the trajectories you're interested in that basically intersect this region that you're interested in. So you mentioned um, with uh, one of your map matching tools, um, it works directly with OSM, Open Street Mapping. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I know it's a really big project, but I don't know too much more around it. So yeah, OpenStreetMap, um, it started about 15 years ago now, 2004. It is an open and collaborative map. So it's like Wikipedia for maps, that was the goal. It was created as a backlash to proprietary maps. So uh, up until maybe 10 years ago, uh, map data was owned by private companies. Google had their map, um, TomTom had a map, here had a map. Um, OpenStreetMap was an effort to say, people should own their map data, it should be an open source of knowledge. So originally you'd only see it in these small, quite grassroots projects, but it's really grown and big companies have started adopting it. So one famous one is Apple have moved from using Google Maps over to OpenStreetMap a few years ago, which is a really big statement of belief in the quality of this open tool. Because it is anyone can go in and edit it. It is I could go in and change it. I've changed things like in my neighborhood that I know are, are wrong. Or um, you can add in points onto this map. It is completely Open. Precisely, yeah, and changes go in immediately into this map. Um, it's got the really interesting model, which I think has led has been a big reason for its popularity as well. It's quite simple to work with. Everything 
an object in OSM is either a node or it's a sequence of nodes, uh, like a line. Sometimes those lines might join back onto themselves and define an area. And that's the that's especially the basis of their model. How it has its really rich map information is through a tagging system where every object can have a sequence of key value pairs assigned to it that might say, well, this sequence of points is a highway and it's this type of highway and it's got this speed limit and it's part of this speed network. And that's all in the tags. And it's through this system that OSM gives data about the world on the map. That's really cool. I never really considered yeah. that um, you'd have a, a key value pair system in a map. I mean, yeah. it kind of makes sense, but it's a really cool way of using and then displaying information. Yeah, one one potential downside of it is because it's not completely strictly enforced. So there are there are lots and lots of queries around the quality of OpenStreetMap, particularly in the past. So people have said, well, like Wikipedia, if anyone can go in and edit it, how do we know it's good? But then at the same time, that openness is kind of a strength of it because the quality of Wikipedia information is generally really high and it's the same mm. for OpenStreetMap. You don't really get malicious edits of the map. What you might get would be typos in the tag system, for instance, but there's also a lot of bots in the OSM world to try and deal with that sort of thing. Something that is great about OpenStreetMap is that the fact that it is so open, it's meant that there's this really great community that's built around it and this fantastic tool ecosystem. So there are lots of really good tools for editing the map, for working with the map data. Python has tools like um, Overpass, which is an API into getting and using OSM map data, for instance. Oh, okay. um, the community makes it very easy to build uh, supporting tools. Yeah, well, I will make sure I put some no um, some links into the show notes so people can get started. Because, yeah, I for one would quite like to you know, uh, make a start with it kind of thing. Yeah. Because yeah. it sounds like there's a huge, rich amount of data that you wouldn't think of. No, absolutely not. So we, we're interested mostly in the roads in OSM data because that's what, that's what we do. So we would say, well, we only want um, sequences of nodes which have a highway tag on them. But then you might also say, if you don't filter for that, you might get power lines. And then the tag mm. will give you information like what voltage the power line supplies out. Who installed <laughs> that power line? When did they supply it? That's um, fantastic. And it's, it's so rich, but it it's not rigidly enforced. So yeah. whatever's there is there and nothing more than that. And it's down to people that submit it. Yeah. So pros and cons of it, really. I do know that um, Open, data Man Open Data Manager are doing quite a bit of work into... Um, Open street mapping and trying to uh, trying to improve the quality of data. I think trying to raise awareness of the fact it's there. Yeah, absolutely. So, They're doing a good product. Uh, I think it's called Mapping Mobility Stockport at the moment, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is around putting mobility issues onto the OSM map. I think, or marking how people with mobility problems can use their spaces through OSM. Yeah, and working with Stockport Council to um, yeah, to make it more of a more of an effort to get some weight behind it, which sounds mm -hmm. really positive. Um, and yeah, we'll put links to that and um, to Open Data Manager and. Uh, their their mapping projects as well in the show notes. Um, <clears throat> I've used OSM in. Um, if anyone's been familiar with mapping uh, other software to map data like ArcGIS, I I um, don't spend money on software, so I use QGIS, which is the free equivalent of ArcGIS, and um, there's tons of. Um, plugins that use OpenStreetMap uh, so you can put your maps, put your data points on a OpenStreetMap base map with QGIS. That's really cool. Yeah, um, I've done similar things with QGIS and it fits in very nicely with the uh, GeoPandas. Oh, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, come full, it's come full circle. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, this might be a controversial question, um, but with OpenStreetMap, 
Um, there's, I know there's been a bit of controversy about um, private companies using it as opposed to um, the original, the original aim for um, you know private citizens and community-driven efforts. Um, yeah, I think it's it was kind of inevitable as the quality and the size of it grew. Company, the companies would look at it and be like, "Well, why are we paying for map data? Like OpenStreetMap is just as good." But one um, one interesting thing around the OpenStreetMap license is they have this uh, share-alike policy, which is if you use the OpenStreetMap data and you improve upon it, you have to push that back into the OpenStreetMap data. And so if you imagine you're a big company and you then build something else on top of that, maybe you'd be reluctant to push that back. So there's a lot of slightly deliberate kind of uh, vagueness around how to interpret that part of the policy and it's it is definitely I think a source of contention in the community at the moment is to what extent should private companies be kind of siloing off the OSM data and is it in OSM's interest to still keep this in their policy even um but yeah it's definitely I think it's not a question that's going to go away either it's quite a Quite yeah. a big well, the definition of what of built of what data could be incorporated when you build on top of it, because there could yeah. be stuff that's almost unrelated to um, mapping itself. Yeah, so uh, it's, it also comes down to what people want to do. So these companies are, I think, they have people they employ people to improve the map. So one example, that's a good thing. yeah. Uh, so one example is um, geocoding. So tying uh, a business address, for instance, to a point on the map, that's fairly boring work, and yeah. so it's not something that kind of your average uh, community OSM volunteer would necessarily want to do, whereas it's something that big businesses need in the OSM data. Um, and so that's something that they are adding in that isn't necessarily already there. And so then it's like, well, should they push that back in for other companies to use? Yeah. It does seem like, um, it does strike a parallel with open source software development, massive co uh, corporations building entire software platforms off freely developed work and not contributing back. So it's nice to know that some people are, or some companies are still, you know, putting their own time and money into improving the quality of the yeah. street maps. Yeah, absolutely. There are still areas where it lags behind proprietary maps as well, though. Um, so one, one area specifically uh, for navigation is that OpenStreetMap has never especially been focused around uh, things like lanes on the roads, whereas proprietary maps have has navigation has been their main purpose from the absolute start and so they've been designed quite well around the concept of lanes and different lanes on single roads which isn't really present in OSM for instance so there's still there are still cases where OSM isn't quite specialized enough for what you want to do but I think we're going to see a lot of change particularly as more big companies start uh, embracing it and putting into it. Yeah, sounds really promising. We want to know if you have any tech heroes you'd like to shout out as we close this show. Anyone who's um, been an amazing mentor or who's inspired you or like who do you, who's your tech hero? Uh, I'll, I'll go first then. Um, so in Manchester, there is uh, my former supervisor in academia, uh, Professor Anna Scaife. It was great. So she was my... I did my postdoc with her and um, she was great in that she works, um, she's one of the leading figures in the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, where they, which they are building in South Africa and Australia and it will be the world's biggest telescope in the world. It's going to be absolutely massive. The amount of data as you're talking about, you know, you're talking about pentabytes um, and just how she's handling all, how to process all that data, astronomical data, it's just phenomenal. Um, so that that was always really inspiring to me. How many 
zeros. Yeah, so they're basically there's a new um I know there's like research in IBM down in the Netherlands that are working the exascale technology basically. Um and you're talking about um you know observations that you can't really store for long term because it's you know, I think they had the phrase, you have to save the data on the sky. So if you want to get that data again, you have to just observe it again, because there's no way you can actually <laughs> say, keep the data saved. So the raw data anyway. So so it's, it's probably big data problem. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it'll blow your mind if you start reading about it. It'll just like, when we talk about big data, that's just something <laughs> altogether. <laughs> so yeah, she was a big inspiration to me. Awesome. Uh, I would say there's a couple of uh, people. There's Kathy O'Neill and Safia Noble, who I think are fantastic. They do amazing work in making a lot of noise around inequality in machine learning, which is machine learning is a big part of our algorithm development at Enrix, and it's really well we're, we're relatively lucky. We work with fairly neutral data, and it's it's really important to see that people. It's good to see that people are thinking about these things and yeah, making noise about it. Um, there's someone called Tom McRight, who, has done, who was a co-founder of Mapbox and has done a ton of good work with OSM and kind of open geodata in general. So I think a lot of us would use stuff that he's made every day without realising it. So it's a little shout out because yeah. he, he makes great tools. Yeah. And for me, there are so many unnamed, wonderful people on Twitter working in things like um, like public sector data and digital roles who just do amazing inspiring work because it seems like it can be such a grind and a struggle to kind of get new tools and technologies used in these environments and I'm always impressed to see the good work they do so yeah all my tech heroes brilliant thank Thanks. you thank you very much so I'm going to hijack that question real quick we have been hosted by a company called Amaze Realize tonight who told us they didn't even want us to mention them on the podcast <laughs> Uh, they gave us this venue for free, a nice quiet place. They bought us pizza and drinks and stuff. So I just want to say thank you to them, regardless of the intentions. Maybe this is what they wanted, but I didn't. So. <laughs> um, They'd be great. Yeah. Okay, so uh, thank you guys for coming in. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you amazing guys. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>